Hi, I'm Milton Davis, and you're listening to Microphones of Madness. Hey, everybody. It's Microphones of Madness. We are back. As always, I'm Rodney, and sitting across the country from me is my partner, Steve. Hey. And today, we are talking Imaro, Sword and Soul, the classic by Charles Saunders. Yeah, the one that started it all. And this is a book that really does not get the recognition that it deserves. Everybody we've talked to leading up to this 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 episode has been like, Imaro, man, that's just shit. And they're right. They are. It's just funny that everybody in our little circle has heard of it and loves it. Mm-hmm. And then if you go a little bit broader, because it is Sword and Soul Month, mm-hmm. and we were asking about Sword and Soul authors beyond Saunders, Davis, Ojitade. Right. And everyone we asked gave us Saunders, Davis, Ojitade. Correct. And, and you know, it leads, led us to believe that uh, Sword and Soul is a very, very small and compact niche of creative work. But that, that, that does not in any way diminish the quality of it. I mean, everything we've read coming out of Sword and Soul, um, I believe season one, we praised Key Conga, the anthology. Last batch of episodes, we did uh, Beneath the Shining Jewel by Balagon Ojitade. Mm-hmm. Um, fantastic fucking book. So we decided to do an entire string of episodes dedicated just to Sword and Soul. And we decided to start with, with Saunders as the godfather of Sword and Soul. Tell us a little bit about Charles Saunders, Steve. Well, Charles Saunders is an American author currently living in Canada. And uh, he grew up with the classic sword and sorcery, science fiction authors of his youth, which, you know, Howard, um, Burroughs. Mm-hmm. And he came to the conclusion that, um, just just so you know, Charles Saunders is black, that uh, a lot of it was racist. And black characters weren't being represented very well. There were no, I won't say good, but interesting black characters. Right, right. So he decided he was going to write stories that he would want to read himself, that would have um, black characters that were interesting. And I'm not saying black characters that are always going to be heroes or black characters that are always going to be villains, or he just wanted to have a realistic story with black characters in it. So he created Imaro. The novel Imaro is a collection of six novellas written by Saunders and published, I believe, the late 70s. It was a number of uh, Canadian small press and free press publications. But that also is part part and parcel of the genre. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a ton of, I won't count the new weird because people actually do write novels right. in the new weird. But like back in the day, you get even like something like Foundation, which is really mm-hmm. three short stories that are lumped together. Connecting serialized stories featuring the same characters and just collecting them together. Right. Because a lot of times, you know, this type of fiction was only published in magazines. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what Saunders does a far better job 
of cleaning up his stories to to have a narrative flow than almost any other author that that works in the same way. One ended and the other picked up right where the last one left off. And and I don't know, you know, not having access to the the original published material, was that edited or were these stories written this way? Because they were serialized short stories mm-hmm. or independent short stories. There are a lot of times where the same information gets repeated. Every section of the book gives us a recounting of Imaro's backstory. But but not not like a lot. Just enough. Right. Yeah, it's it's worked into the narrative because mm-hmm. Imaro is a very introspective sort of adventurer. And he does spend a lot of time when he's not flexing his thews and just being a general badass. He's brooding. He's he's brooding and introspective and, and, and thinking a lot. It kind of reminds me of the, the way the CW superhero shows work, mm-hmm. how Saunders um, does this. He will have a story that is self-contained, and then he will have an overarching plot, a big, uh, like a meta plot, that gets, that gets mentioned occasionally in these stories, mm-hmm. but is separate from the action that is going on now. But it's always pushing the characters in a direction. Imaro is the story of the titular hero. Um, he is of m- mixed parentage. His mother is of the Ilyasai tribe. Right. And you'll have to forgive our mispronunciations. But his father, who his father is, is unknown. Possibly he might be a mixed um, race, I guess. Um, yeah, human. it's... they Might the, not be all human. Right. The stories hint, particularly later in the book, that uh, Imaro could be a demigod. The book outlines his adventures from his early childhood to his rite of passage as a man his exile from from the tribe, and him discovering his new life. There's so much that happens within the span of these these, these six stories that is just like, it is gripping. You're just like, oh, wow, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? The first time we really start to see the character that Imaro would become is during his teenage years. He's out uh, herding. His The tribe are herders. Cattle is like wealth. Right. They're, they're basically, um, they're the Maasai tribe. Mm. Through a series of events. I mean, he's an outcast amongst his own, his own people. Right, because of his mixed parentage. Because of his mixed parentage. Um, and the fact that um, his mother had done something to get herself ostracized from the tribe. That's right. Her mother rooted out a great evil mm-hmm. from the tribe. But in doing so, she had... Uh, conceived a child outside of the tribe, right? Which is um, taboo, taboo. verboten. So, in in a lot of ways, you know, Imaro is actually paying for the sins of his mother, right? And his mother is a rather formidable character in her own right. Well, his mother kicked the ass of a of a sorcerer, mm-hmm. right? And, and sorcerer. right, and you get this you get this sense as you're reading through the first the first section of the book. That, you know, a lot, a really interesting book occurred right before this book. That's right. Because you have a recounting of the deeds of his, of Imaro's mother. Well, it's a testament to Saunders himself that he can create 
a vibrant world that has a history that is hinted at, and then you personally, you fill in the blanks, but you don't feel like these characters are just plopped into a, a, into a static world and you set them free and they do what they do. Right. You, you, get, you get that sense of history, that sense of this is just a chunk in the doings of this particular part of the universe. Right. And well, after it's, it's, it's over, it's going to continue on. But this is what we're talking about right here. Right. It's it's like a living history, unlike um, you know the the Hyborian history, where you might get a passage of you know, many thousands of years ago. <laughs> came down from <laughs> the mountain. Right. Exactly. That that sort of thing. You know, you don't you don't really get that kind of feel. Right. It's it's um, almost Tolkien esque, um, but even it's even more, I think, more vibrant than Tolkien's history. Yes, because Tolkien's history is something that is written. The elves did this after the Silmarils were lost, and blah 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 blah. And it's like it's like reading history, history text, right? Whereas this is more of you get the sense that this happened. And it happened fairly recently. And mm-hmm. if you were to dig deep enough, you would find events that happened before that, and events that happened before that. Well, it's it's pretty much any character that you run across. Um, we mentioned this in, with a lot of uh, Balogun Ojitade's writing, is that uh, the storytelling feels very oral, mm-hmm. and you do get that sense that yes, the world of Imaro is is a very ancient world, but the feel of the history is a lot different. It's more like traditions, songs, and things passed down from generation to generation to generation. And and you see that in kind of the the way Imaro is presented not as, you know, this rare hero that just kind of pops into existence, but really as kind of a generational hero. Mm-hmm. His mother was a hero. Imaro grows up to be a hero. Imaru's children, if he has any children, will probably grow up to be heroes. You know, it's just like this family tradition almost. And and family being one of the major themes of, of the book. That's what he wants most in life. There's there's the old Conan, you know, quote everybody can rattle off the top of their head, you know, what's best in life. And for Imaru, what's best in life is a place to fit in, a place to belong, home. And family, and I, I think that as a as a theme of the book, really, you know, sets a, sets a much different tone than a lot of sword and sorcery type of characters, where everybody's in you know, like you know, fame and glory and money and random acts of violence. Where well, you know, Morrow's sense of wealth comes from cattle. How many? Mm-hmm. How big your herd is? That is his sense of wealth. It's very personal. Yeah, it's very, very personal. These, there's not these like ideals within him. You know, he he has the the instincts of the society he was brought up in, mm-hmm. and he is exposed to these different types of societies as he goes up. He goes, you know, from the uh, savanna tribes of herders into the forest tribes where you have a lot of fishermen and hunters and whatnot, where they live a very peaceful and secluded life. They get along 
along with everybody else around. And then he moves on and joins the uh, the group of bandits. And that is a very cosmopolitan type of thing. Several cultures filtering in. Everybody kind of does their own thing. And yet they are a, a cohesive group. All of these cultures are based on actual people that lived in Africa mm-hmm. or, or do live in Africa. Um, Saunders researched his his Africa um, about as much as, as Howard researched his Europe. And he definitely, I mean, it's kind of the same deal where Howard had uh, stand-ins for different European tribes and people that populated um, Conan's world. And Saunders did the exact same thing. It just, nobody, I won't say nobody, because I mean, obviously there are people who know this stuff, but the majority of people who are reading this, Americans, don't know the history of peoples in Africa. <laughs> and so it, you get this sense that you, you of just wonder, because honestly, you know, you grow up in America and you were taught, you look at Africa as this other place. Well, I mean, you, you, you look at like the American education system, all you're taught about Africa is the only civilization of meaningful import is Egypt. And that's it. Nothing else. That's all, is all Africa was. Right. And Africa is huge. Yes. It's a big place with a ton of different cultures, and you get that sense here. But I think that slaps people in the face, A. It kind of opens your eyes a little bit as to what the potential for using Africa as as your template mm-hmm. for storytelling is. And we'll get into that later as we continue with Sword and Soul. I, I I was reading the book. I was absolutely enthralled. I think I ended up uh, you know getting caught up with some other things, and it took me a little bit longer to read. But once I was able to sit down and really read, I was so engrossed. I think I read half the book in a single sitting, just because just following Imaro, following his deeds and these characters along to see what would happen next. And Imaro as a character, we, we discussed him as being kind of a generational hero, but he's also really this kind of like this character that is almost cursed. His mother overthrows the, uh, the, the dark sorcerer, casts him out of the village. Uh, he ends up facing the same dark sorcerer, having leveled up a couple of times. <laughs> um, with, with, with Lovecraftian elements. With Lovecraftian elements. Um, get, get tentacles. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> when, we, when we say Lovecraftian elements, uh, we, we say that in jest, and uh, we mean tentacles. Yes. Yeah, he, and he, he defeats this guy, and the guy reveals to him that, hey, you know, I'm not the only one like me. There was- are many. He fought Wilbur Wally. Right. (laughs) Sorry. The guy had like tentacles coming out of his belly. Right. Right. It's a, it's a symptom of corruption. Yeah. Uh, Once you're corrupted by these dark gods, the, the Mashatan, you develop this thing that they grow out of you and your body becomes like a Mashatan and, and they're kind of like demon, demon gods. And they're always in the background. And you get a hint of the cosmology uh, mm-hmm. later on in the book. You get kind of a, a hint of what's going on like behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Right. You get a little bit of a hint of the cosmology. In a lot of ways, 
faith is treated as a serious thing, but it's also treated as kind of like it's just a thing we do. Right. Um, you know, a lot of the uh, the actual deities are are given kind of lip service. Deities don't actually show up and do things. It's it's all human effort. You have heroes who who you know their physicality and their wits, and they're pitting them up against these dark powers. And Amaro is exactly that. Is he is searching for a home first and foremost, but he's also cursed to be the the one guy who is continually pitted against these dark forces. Right. He's able to, every once in a while, pretend that he's happy Mm -hmm. because he can push his true nature and the the knowledge of of what is going on. He can can conceal that from himself for a little while. Mm -hmm. But because he's being, basically he's being hunted by, by these dark gods and their agents, that he's constantly coming into contact with them. And he's constantly coming into contact with them, and each time they reveal just a tiny bit more about why they're after him. Right. And that is the big mystery of Imaro's life, is why are these dark gods hunting me? Right. Why, why do I, am I always pulled into these confrontations with them? Because every single story that happens, this is what happens to him. Right. And, and none of them start out with he's fighting dark gods. No. They all start out with he's doing something in his life, whether it's um, trying to fit in with the river people, becoming a bandit leader, fighting a war with, uh, with two, two uh, kingdoms. They all start out, I won't say innocently, but they all start out rather mundanely. Yes. Yeah, it it's always starts out with the theme of Imaro looking for a place to fit in. Right. Um, you know, and a lot of times he is alone. Uh, he he is alone even in the village of the Ilyasai. Um, he is alone when we meet him in the second story, and he's journeying through the forest, and then he becomes this this part part of this group. He's accepted, and it's really hard for him to understand what this, what it means to be accepted. And I think that's, um, you know, I, I think a lot of Imaro speaks to many different levels of acceptance. Um, you know, you have this, this black hero and he's making his way through the world, but he's not quite fitting in wherever he goes. And I, I think that's, it's an interesting commentary on, modern society is that you know if you're not the norm being the you know straight white guy you know you also have this kind of homeless feeling and i and i think that that interpretation works works well within the story as a subtext but i think on on another level imaro is pretty much anybody who's been an outsider so, so he has a very specific cultural commentary, but he also has a universal appeal as well to, you know, outsiders. Well, you don't get a lot of, of these stories where the hero is the outsider. Mm-hmm. Um, most of what you get 
is where the hero is the pinnacle of what society expects. Right. Um, Superman. Mm-hmm. Conan. I mean, the, the list is fairly endless. Right. And it, it, it isn't until somebody like Spider-Man comes along mm-hmm. um, where you actually get the loser or the outsider is the hero. Right, right. You know, Amaro, Spider-Man, uh, Ben Grimm, to an extent, um, that type of hero, the right. outsider hero. You get marginalized people being the hero. And I guess a lot of the new weird looks at that, uh, but you don't get a lot of general like mass consumption fiction that actually looks that way, mm-hmm. especially especially in action and adventure. You may, in, in non-genre fiction, I don't read a lot of it, so I couldn't, couldn't attest to that. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I mean, in, in genre fiction, you have that, that heroic ideal, and it's always the, the pinnacle of whatever society it is. And Even like, like uh, a shadow mm-hmm. or Doc Savage, you still get these ideals. Right. Well, Doc Savage, Doc Savage you know, be, is, is being like Superman, right. you know, being the, the perfect specimen. Of, of everything you know his intellect is extremely high he does so many skills he's you know physically perfect um you know in the same and he has this moral code that is the you know upstanding you know american ideal at the right. time and and now we're getting into genre fiction and pulp and all of its offshoots and and children you know like comics and whatnot is that you're getting a world, a, a, the new vision of what that society is, and one that's more inclusive, and uh, you know, more reflective of what you see out your window, and yeah, and that's one of the things that really you know, kind of drove us into doing Sword and Soul Month, and starting with with Imaro because Imaro really is kind of a pinnacle of that new world that's being forged, and it is one where Anybody can be the hero, not just a guy that looks like me or looks like Steve. Nobody who looks like me can possibly be a hero. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in Steve's case, villains. (laughs) This book really deserves more attention than it gets. It it really does. As far as I'm concerned, I said this about the genre in general. But I will say this about Charles Saunders, that Robert E. Howard started this whole mess Mm -hmm. with sword and sorcery. And it got refined. And you have luminaries that help redefine the direction sword and sorcery goes, like Fritz Lieber, Mm -hmm. Michael Moorcock, Jack Vance. Mm -hmm. Charles Saunders is up there with those greats. His name should be mentioned with them. Right. Because he just took it to the next level. He did. He took it to the... He, not only did he take it to the next level, but he he made it more accessible for mm-hmm. everyone to, to enjoy sword and sorcery. Right. And uh, not just pimply white kids. In their now, basement. Right. Now pimply black kids can enjoy it. <laughs> the one thing that really, you know... I would say is a criticism is that MRO is a very masculine book. 
there was definitely some some sexism going on in Amaro. Right. And, you know, there's implied uh, sexual assault, um, especially in the, the scenes with the bandit horde. Right. You have the major character, Tanisha, uh, who comes from a people where the women are pretty much chosen for their appearance at a young age and groomed for no other purpose than to please a man. Right. They're courtesans, professional courtesans. Yes. That's how their their nation stays out of war is There's the... Twilix of, of Africa. Yes. Um, yet, in another way, you see Tanisha, you know, in, in, in that lens as being the, the courtesan and, and really her mentality is always to support her man. But they also make it a big ch- point of mentioning that, yes, you know, her people are sold to be the wives of kings and nobles and wealthy people. But yet there's only room for one man in, in their lives and they choose that man. Well, that's true. And towards the end, um, where Tanisha is actually kicking some ass. Right. She goes through She goes through a class upgrade. She, she actually has an epiphany and realizes that maybe if her people learn to kick some ass themselves, that they mm-hmm. wouldn't have to um, treat the women of, of their people this way. Right. And, and, I, and, and Saunders really um, puts it forth in a, in a really powerful line is that she muses that if more, peop- more of her people died this way, less would die the other way. And you know that's that that was a really potent epiphany for her right there, and I found it interesting that he pretty much stopped the action of what's going on. He's he's narrating this huge battle sequence, um, and it, it happened right after one of the most satisfying parts in the book, <laughs> when Imaro takes his spear and just throws it at a sorcerer who's not paying attention, turns around right in time to have a spear and pale his neck. Right, right. <laughs> it's awesome. Right. <laughs> it's it just kind of like, but, and, and the book is full of sequences like that, though, that are just like, you read it and you're like, whoa, that's badass. You know, you know Imaro picks up the spear and hefts it. It wasn't like the spears that you know he grew up with, but they could throw them too, and he throws it in critical <laughs> hit. Imaro pauses for a second from fighting the thug he's fighting, picks up his war boomerang and whips it behind it and hits the guy on the falcon. Sorry. Cross-referencing. Cross-referencing. That happened in massive Nyarlathotep. Yeah. And, And that was a really interesting and it was a very pivotal moment for that character, but right afterwards she became a damsel in distress. Yeah, that's true. I mean, and that was total plot. Right. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. One of the things, you know, we had, we had discussed this a little bit earlier about the world in which Imaro takes place. And I was thinking about it. Um, you know, I hate to, I hate to constantly, you know, bring up comparison to it, but you know, it's, it's kind of the genre thing. And I guess it's part of the analysis of the book, but you have, you know, something we talked about, uh, Hyboria, Saunders' world, the world of Imaro, is much more vivid. You know, yeah, other sword and sorcery characters, they journey across the world and you meet all these different landscapes. 
but you know it, most of them end up being desolate and and whatnot. In Morrow's world, he's constantly you know moving through living landscapes. You know he's on guard constantly for the wildlife. Yep. There are birds and monkeys and, and chimpanzees. They mentioned gorillas. There are lions. Lions yeah. factor in big in Amaro. Right. Well, lion lions um, lions possess the soul of the fallen Ilisai warriors, mm-hmm. and their uh, the coming of age is ceremony. Is you have to fight a lion single handedly by, by yourself. Yep. And uh, release the fallen warrior's soul mm-hmm. so he can be reborn as an Illisai. Yeah, but it's very, very much a, a lush landscape. And mm-hmm. we travel to many different locations over the course of this book. The savanna, into the jungle, and into the mountains. And ba- the Badlands as well. And the Badlands, yes. You know, the book ends in the Badlands. Yeah. Now, um, one thing that really got me about the, the setting was the way Saunders treated the different peoples that Amaro um, came across. Mm-hmm. You had different tech levels, different cultures, and now you don't, he didn't really get into a lot of detail about the cultures except for the Illisai. You got a lot of information on the Illisai. Mm-hmm. But you get the sense that the people he's writing about are living, breathing people. Yes. Um, you even had one, one group um, towards the end that were decayed. Mm-hmm. That they had once broken away from the main people of that area, isolated themselves, and they're, they're, they had devolved. Or in a, they were they were a dying, a dying yeah. culture. Yeah, but it wasn't like red nails dying culture, right? Where they were, <laughs> became like um, decadent exactly. and and. You kind of just, almost a natural thing. That, yeah, you could tell that they were they were going to die out, um, and it was through their own choices. And and you go through and you see the different beliefs of the people, uh, the different things that they care about, and how those things, you know, bump up against other things. The the Haramia uh, is is a melting pot. There are people from it's the it's a party of bandits, a party of outcasts. It is, you know, a real melting pot, and there are people from various cultures represented. Um, you know, Saunders goes through and he talks about, you know, how, you know, they're, each of the important characters is from a different group. Right. And they all dress different. They all speak a different language, but they've, they've managed to get along. He also, he captures that language thing mm-hmm. so well. I'm assuming that everyone is speaking, of, with the exception of, of the Plains, mm-hmm. or the Savannah people, right. that everyone is speaking um, like Swahili or, right. Bant, or Bantu. Right, right. And you have different different uh, regional flavors. And, and this is what Africa is like, or was, I don't know now, but mm-hmm. pre-colonial Africa, you'll have a language group that, that is broad like Swahili and has different, um, you know, grammar conventions. Right. Right. Or different words for, right. For but, but now these people will speak a regional variant of Swahili that the, these other people won't understand at all because, mm-hmm. because they're, they're so they've been separated for so long. They're practically other languages, uh, similar to, to Chinese dialects. 
it's a it's a feature of the I believe the second story where he goes in with the forest people, saves the um, the brothers, and over the course of the the one uh, brother's convalescence, learns the, enough of the language to get by. Right, and and then a variant language is used by the bandits. Mm-hmm. It's the same. It's similar enough where you can, they could kind of understand, and it facilitates learning that language eventually right right so by the time by the time we we meet um mro at his the height of his power effectively he is able to communicate with pretty much anybody he comes into contact with right that's another another trait is that he he's looking for a place to fit in and one of the things to be able to to fit in somewhere is to be able to communicate well, you don't get that in, in Hyboria. Everybody speaks the same language. Or or I believe Conan Conan himself speaks multiple languages, and it's just I speak multiple languages. Right. And I'm Conan, so I just pick them up like that. Right. Or uh, Elric. Even like Elric, you have Melibanan and mm-hmm. then Common. Right. Right. Most Most... Fantasy or, or sword and sorcery settings have a common language. Well, you have that. It's a convention that makes everything easier. Right. That everybody but speaks the same language, so you don't Sa- have to. Saunders went for real- reality as opposed mm. to uh, making it easier on himself. And he did it really effectively. It's really good. I like the sequence where um, Maro is, is about to be whipped. Mm-hmm. Where... Um, the, the I forgot his name. The, the bandit chieftain is is talking to him through an interpreter, and right. Morrow won't look at the interpreter; just keeps on looking at the chieftain, right. and responding to him instead of to the interpreter. Very effective to show like what Morrow's made of, right? And that he knows that even though you know he knows who is speaking to him, he knows who is actually speaking, right? Um, you know, and, and Morrow is a very shrewd character like that he's he has no fear fear is not an emotion that Imaro really understands no his his major driving emotion is hatred mm-hmm. right and anger yeah and, and he's a very angry character oh yeah well wouldn't you be yeah i mean you know given the circumstances of his um and it's when he loses touch with that anger is you know he's people are able to get the best of him. Mm-hmm. He succumbs to plots when he is at a point where he has, you know, released some of that anger right. and some of that, that hatred. And once he's a, once he's found it again, everybody just kind of backs off because they know when he, you know, that look in his eyes, he's unstoppable. Right. Well, and that's also the point where even people who know him look mm-hmm. at him and go, Oh shit. I hitch my I hitch my horse to this wagon. I gotta get the fuck out of here. Right, right, and that's another thing too is that you know they're you know particularly in the latter chapters where he's with the Haramia and he um, he takes over as the commander. A lot of the criticisms of Imaro's leadership is that you know hey are you just you're just letting yourself get swept along in this guy's wake? You know yeah we're making some money right now but you know. You know how he got here. We don't know who he is, what he does. Yeah, you know, we know what he can do, and 
what he's capable of, and you're just kind of just following along, and eventually it's going to lead to his destruction, and it's going to lead to yours. Mm-hmm. I think it really it does. And it does. Sadly, it doesn't lead to Amaro's destruction. It leads to the destruction of everyone around him. Yeah, pretty much. And in a very literal sense. By by the time we reach the final the final act of the final story, Amaro has lost everything. Yeah, um, he's, he's built he's, up so much over the course of the book <laughs> that, that he's back to square one. He's back to nothing. Yeah, it's a zero sum. Actually, mm-hmm. it's 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 a negative because he's in the beginning he was kind of in a stasis and he had a goal that was achievable, um, but he could he had nothing to lose right at the end of the book he's lost the one thing that he he actually cares about mm-hmm. tanisha right and well he also he also lost the the haramia he he does know, grow an attachment to it considering them my people yeah but i think they were a little bit more expendable to him uh, and I think that's that comes in in with the culture of the group is that your bandits are kind of expendable in in battle and whatnot, and that you know you'll be easily replaced. If he really cared about the Haramia, he would have told them, "Look, I'm being hunted by demons. Mm. We're going to go get. We're going to take the game to them, right? Hit their ass, and then we'll have our own kingdom." He could have done that, right? But he doesn't. He doesn't but even he tell his best friend. The only person who knows is his his weakness. Is you know she got she's now a damsel in distress. Where, where it, the book ends on a cliffhanger. I think we mentioned that. Uh, no, we haven't mentioned that yet. But yes, it does. It ends on a cliffhanger. It, 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 I want to know what happens. In one way, you know, you've just read this novel, and you're left with the cliffhanger of Imaro. Pretty much just like it, the final scene is he's in a new land. Yeah. Starting from scratch again with, with one goal, and that is, you know, the recovery of Tanisha, who has been kidnapped by the agents of the the, the Mahashan or Mahashan. That again is a very powerful image. It's it's him alone you know, standing there, you know, I know what I have to do, and then he just kind of like marches on into it. So in a way, it's kind of a a satisfying end in regards to it's just a slice of of history. You know, you might expect to pick up another book and in, 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 pick up another story in the series and it dealing with another generation after this has happened. And and you get you know, say Imaro's son and Imaro's son recounts what happened between him and Tanisha, and then goes off on his own adventure. There's two more books. Right, there's two more books, uh, more collections of of the further short stories. I do believe uh, the next one is the Quest for Kush. Uh, the third one is called the Trail of Bohu. Definitely go out, go. I believe it's on Lulu.com. Yeah, the best way to get these books, um, actually, all of Charles Saunders' books are available on uh, Lulu, but you can go through MV Media, mm-hmm. um, who has links to the Lulu site. All of Saunders's work, and you can pick up copies. I think that, as far as Morrow is concerned, the first book you can get an ebook mm-hmm. um, off of Amazon or iTunes, right? Um, but the other ones 
are out of print and you need to go through Lulu to, to get, get them. Those. And I would recommend that you buy um, new copies of these books uh, just for just to show uh, Saunders that you support his writing mm-hmm. and that he should write more. Lulu.com. Get your get your copies of, of Saunders' work. Uh, definitely check it out if you have it. If you have checked it out in the past, get yourself a new copy and read it again. Yeah, keep on reading. Read it over and over. Read it to your kids. It's worth it. It's totally worth it. It's not pastiche. It's not derivative. I mean, yes, okay, it's derivative in the the fact that it's, you know, everything is derivative of Howard at one point. But it's. And you can totally tell that Saunders reads a lot of Howard. Right. But. It's it's unique and re- and refreshing in a genre that bogs down. I mean, if you've read some of the DeCamp Conan stories or Robert Jordan Conan stories, you just like you just get to the point where you're like, "What the fuck are you doing?" There's a there's a freshness about Imaro. Yes, uh, Charles Saunders Imaro, fantastic stuff. Get it. Thanks for listening. Yeah. We'll see you guys next time. <laughs>